chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. When we began uh, looking at this subject in the, the very beginning, several uh, weeks ago, we began by reading from uh, this passage, and I want to return to it again and, and really just sort of unpack some of the things that are here, uh, because as much as there is in the Bible that addresses the particular issue of racism and divisions, uh, we, can, we can look at this text uh, in particular to, to find all that we, uh, we need. So um, tonight I, I just want to read Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, verse 14 uh, down to verse 16. So Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For he, that is Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, there are many issues that present challenges to the gospel in our culture, and one of them is the way the world is addressing the conflicts over race and racism. Lord, your word has not left us in the dark. Your word provides us the tools and the hope and the message that we need to to proclaim to the world how divisions can be broken down and how those who were once enemies can be brought together, specifically through the work of your Son, Jesus. So I pray this uh, evening, Lord, as we've been uh, considering these matters over the last uh, month or so, Lord, I pray that uh, as we conclude our time this, this evening, that we would see the gospel as our, our answer. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, one of the major dangers of CRT is that it tells a story that has the appearance of plausibility. We can, of course, look around uh, in our culture today and see divisions. We see all kinds of divisions. We see political divisions, and we see racial divisions. And uh, I think for, for many, if not most of us, we, uh, we, we, we had thought at least a lot of these uh, racial divisions had uh, sort of come to, to an end. But 
uh, or, or at least largely, uh, largely dealt with, but especially within the last 10 or so years, it's, it's, it's as if these things have started bubbling up uh, yet again. And, uh, and, and as we've seen, CRT sort of provides a, a meta-narrative, a story as to why this is the case. And, and it involves these, these categories of oppressed groups and oppressor groups, right? The, the white and black divide is one of a, of a power struggle. And, and as it tells this story, it inevitably leads to a, a solution that, that becomes a struggle for power. Its narrative, however, is a narrative that has no real hope. Again, it's a story that implies only the need to utilize political power to achieve new political and revolutionary ends. The, the problem is fundamentally a problem of power, therefore the solution must inevitably be a solution involving power and politics. Because of this, it only creates various groups of people who become burdened with various grievances. And because of these grievances, they are not seeking peace, they're not seeking reconciliation, they're seeking vengeance under the guise of justice. Its solution, the solution of CRT to age-old racial conflicts is to accentuate divisions, to keep groups at odds with one another, and to seize power of various kinds for the purpose of distributing that power to its favored groups. And as long as the solution to racial conflicts is viewed purely through the lens of power struggles, it will remain doomed to fail. There will never be any kind of peace. There will never be any unity. There's always going to be someone or some group with grievances, legitimate or otherwise. And because that's always going to be the case, if the solution becomes one that's uh, merely a, a, um, a power grab, we're going to be constantly at conflict. The Bible, however, provides a different answer to all forms of divisions, not just racial, but every form, religious, class, every form. And there are many places, of course, that we could look to see how it addresses these matters, but again, I want to focus tonight specifically on this passage from Ephesians 2, because these verses provide a concise answer in the gospel of Christ to the reality of racial division. Now, in the first chapter of Ephesians, in, in verses 1 to 9, we see that God has a purpose, in verses 9 and 10, it says, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven, 
things on earth. In Christ, all things are being united in Him. And up until chapter 2, verse 10, this uniting of all things has largely been focused on uniting men to Himself, people to Himself. It has been focused on God's saving plan to rescue His people through the work of Christ. It's had a vertical focus. Beginning in verse 11, however, and going all the way down to the end of chapter 2, Paul shifts his focus. Not completely, but mostly. And he shifts his focus to God's plan of reconciling men, people, to one another through Christ. So he starts with the foundation. You've got to be reconciled to God, and then he moves to the horizontal. Then you're reconciled to each other. In, in verses 11 to 13, Paul talks about how the Gentiles, who, who once were far off, have now been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. And so, so the Gentiles now share in the promises of God that were originally made directly to the Jews. And then in verse 14, Paul really begins to unpack the implications of Jews and Gentiles sharing in the same hopes. The implication is that not only do they both have peace with God, but they both now have peace with one another. Look with me again at verse 14. Paul says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus Himself is our peace. Now, the peace here that, that Paul's talking about, this is not, this is not some, some disposition or, or feeling, some, some internal sense of peace. Certainly, when we, when we believe the gospel, when we're justified by faith, we, we have peace, and that includes like an internal peace with, with God. We have no condemnation by the law. That, that, that judgment that stood over us is removed. And we have peace with God. And, and in a very real sense, we feel the, the burden of the law and, and the judgment lifted from us. So, so there's an internal peace that, that we can have. But, but that here is not the idea of peace that Paul is talking about. What Paul's talking about here is a peace between enemies. Historical enemies. It's relational. It's the kind of peace that you could envision in a chapter like Isaiah chapter 2, where Isaiah there speaks of a day when all of the nations will stream to the mountain of the Lord together to worship. And he says in verse 4, the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their, their spears into pruning hooks. Right? These weapons of war are going to become agricultural tools. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a peace that mends divisions among people and brings them together in the Lord. Paul says, 
It is Jesus himself who is our peace, who is that peace. That's the great theme of the rest of Ephesians 2, that Christ himself is what establishes peace between enemies. He is the only foundation for true unity. People will try to create unity, of course, by their infinite number of worldly philosophies. Perhaps Marxism will create equality and unity among people. Perhaps secularism, where no one speaks of God. Right? That, that's, our, that's our equal confession. No one speaks of God. This will create unity because it's, it's religion that's the problem. We need to speak no more of God. And even as we've been considering over the last several weeks, perhaps it's the, the story, the meta-narrative of critical race theory. That's what will create peace and equity and justice among, among men. as We all become anti-racist together. But apart from Christ, all of these various philosophies are doomed to fail because all men are by nature little devils. And it doesn't matter what philosophies they create. It's built upon a foundation of dead bones. We need a supernatural transformation at the foundation. And Paul says that foundation is the person of Christ. Now, the fullness of the peace will arrive, of course, when Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, comes in His glory and establishes His kingdom on earth. But until that time, we are given a foretaste of what is to come. We're given a little sample of it. And that sample of a world of peace is to be found in the church. That's the, the little sample of the future kingdom breaking into the world even now. When Paul says that Jesus is our peace, he is referring to the church that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, historical enemies. These were two groups of people who by and large, for many years, for many centuries, hated each other. In fact, the division between Jews and Gentiles was far worse, far worse than the black-white racial division that has historically existed in this nation. Gentiles looked at the Jews as arrogant and foolish. They were viewed as lazy because they refused to work on the Sabbath. They were revolting and disgusting because they circumcised their sons. They were haters of mankind because they refused to worship the pagan gods that everyone else worshipped. And the Jews perceived the Gentiles as despicable and as abominations. They were demon worshippers. They were ignorant fools. They they bowed down to stones 
And as a contemptuous term, they referred to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. Literally, the the foreskin. Now, Paul says, in Christ, there is peace between these people. Jesus is our peace. But how does Jesus establish peace among groups of people who historically and culturally despise each other? How does the church become the manifestation of a new society of peace on earth? And how does he break down racial and ethnic divisions? And that's what I want us to to look at in particular tonight. And he does this in three ways. So I'll give you three points from from this little uh, section here. First of all, he destroys the divisions. He destroys the divisions. How does he do this? I want you to look with me again at verse 14. He does this by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, when when Paul is referring here to the dividing wall, he's referring to something very specific. Um, pretend with me for a moment right, that you are an ancient Roman who, who lived in the first century or, or even you know, a little bit before that. And, and you grew up in Italy, and, and you had a vineyard, your family had a vineyard, and you worked on it, and you became rather wealthy. That's how you made your money. You sold wine, you traded wine. And one day you decide that you want to take a you want to take a tour and, and also establish some, some trade relationships in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. You, you've heard about these peculiar people who live over there and this massive temple that they worship at. And you decide that you want to go over there and you want to see it. And so you travel across the Mediterranean Sea and you finally arrive to Jerusalem. And there, as you get there, you, you, you arrive and you see this large temple structure raised on a hill. And then you enter through the gates and immediately come into a court known as the court of the Gentiles. But you're still not, at this point, very close to the temple. Or, or at least from this vantage point, you, you don't have a great view of it. You can't really see it. Too well. All you can see really is the top part of it raised above this other massive wall that's in front of you. And so you decide you want to get a better view. You can take some pictures and send them home, post them on Facebook. And as you walk towards this other massive gate, you find this other wall in front of you. It's called a wall of partition. And there's an inscription on it that says this. This is a real inscription. No man of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure round the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. 
In other words, if you're not a Jew, you better not step, step past this point or we will kill you. Be similar to if you were a black man in 1950s Alabama, but even worse. The sign that designates one water fountain as for whites only is there, only now the warning says, and if any black person drinks from this fountain, he will have himself to blame for his death. The hostilities raged after that. It's a strict warning with the penalty of death. In fact, this is one of the things that almost got Paul killed in Acts 21. In Acts 21, Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple where he was not supposed to be. And it was because of that accusation that the Jews then seized him and tried to kill him. And they started beating him to death. And the only reason that they didn't succeed was because some Roman soldiers heard about all of the ruckus that was going on and they went down to stop it. Ironically, the the Gentile who was said to have defiled the temple, whom Paul was accused of bringing past the dividing wall, was Trophimus, who was an Ephesian. Very very good sense of irony here. Here, in Ephesians, Paul... He's writing to them. He's telling them that now in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. That thing which separated Jews from Gentile is gone. The question is, how has it been destroyed? Of course, at the time when Paul wrote this letter, the actual wall was still standing. So how does Christ destroy this dividing wall? Verse 15, he does so by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The literal dividing wall is an image that Paul uses to describe the effects of the old covenant. The effects of it. The old covenant where the law was not only the standard of righteousness for the Israelites, but it also served the purpose of separating the Israelites from the surrounding pagan nations. When God gave them the law, they were supposed to be a holy nation. They were supposed to be a nation of righteous laws that was completely dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. And they were to and, and, and they, they were to purge any hint of evil from its midst. Right? The, the, you know, it, it, I think you really need to think of the ancient land of Israel as a as sort of a Garden of Eden 2.0. Right? This, this was supposed to be the new kind of garden of God, where, where God is going to dwell in the midst of his people once again, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And, and so the garden has to be pure. 
The garden has to be holy because God is not going to dwell with men as the garden is stained with sin. Right? We see that in the very beginning in, in Genesis 1. Sin enters into the garden. Man banished from the garden. So the land of Israel is supposed to be a, a new sort of garden of Eden. And, and when it becomes corrupted, man is banished once again. So the Israelites were to be distinct, and their land was to be pure and, and holy. And God gave them this law that separated them from the Gentiles to preserve them from becoming like the other nations and, and to preserve them from staining the garden with sin. The problem, however, was that the Israelites themselves were ungodly and, and a stiff-necked people. Their separation from the nations was never meant to give them a right to boast over the nations as if there was something inherently within them that made them superior. Their separation was a part of a larger plan of God to bless all of the nations through them. The nations would see this pure, holy people with laws that no one else had. What, what other nation has laws and a God like this one? They were to be a pure light that, that radiated righteousness to, to the world. And in so doing, bring about a kind of fulfillment of God's promises made to Abraham that through his offspring, the all of the families of the earth would be blessed. The Israelites were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And the nations were supposed to see them and in seeing their righteousness be a people who would desire to obey also the law of God. But unfortunately, we know men are quite adept at taking righteous gifts of God and corrupting them and using them in sinful ways. And of course, that is what the Jews did. They took the law, which was spiritual and good and holy, and they used it as a means of teaching their own inherent superiority over the nations and as a means of creating hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You know, if it, they had you know, read a, such a sweet story like you find in the book of Ruth, they, they would have known that the Gentiles have a vital part in the plan of God to redeem the world. The law was meant to be a light to the nations, but instead became used as a justification for building a dividing wall of hostility. Paul tells us here that that hostility is no more. And it's no more because in Christ, the whole old covenant has been abolished, abrogated. Jesus lived under the law and fulfilled perfectly all of its demands. He was a true Israelite. Where all of the previous Jews had failed and that they could not keep the law, he succeeded. 
And he was crucified under the law as a spotless lamb, becoming a curse under the law, becoming a perfect sacrifice, capable of making atonement for all the sins of his people, both Jews and Gentiles. And having borne the curse of the law in his own body, and then having been raised to new life, he abolished the old covenant by fulfilling all of its demands and inaugurating a new covenant the new covenant that was promised to come that would be better than the old one, that was written on tablets of stone, that was external to man, that you could see, you could point to, you could could read, but it wasn't in here. Jesus fulfilled that, that external covenant and all of its demands are now in the new covenant. The work of the heart the guarantee of this covenant. Think of it. Think of his work like a marriage. In a marriage, two people come together and make a covenant with with one another that they shall love and, and honor one another forever. And as long as they live, they are under a covenant. But if one of them should die, the other spouse is now released from that covenant. That's what Jesus did for us, for his people. He died bearing the condemnation of the old covenant for us. And because he died under that covenant, having fulfilled all of its demands for us, we are now released from it, free of its condemnation. That is what Paul means when he says here that Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And because he has done this, the things that once divided Jews and Gentiles are no more. But that's not all that Jesus does to make peace. He he not only destroys divisions, he also creates a new society. We could probably argue that, that if Jesus had simply abolished the old covenant, if that was all he did, it still would not have been enough to establish peace between Jews and Gentiles, or between anyone for that matter matter because we still would have had our sinful, fallen, corrupt natures. We still would have been those who were born in Adam. We we still would have been those who followed in his footsteps, always listening to the serpent and not to the word of God. And so what does Jesus do? He creates something new. He creates a new society. Look again at verse 14, where after Paul says that Jesus is our peace, he then says that he has made us both one. He's made us into something. Made Jews and Gentiles into one. Then in verse 15, Paul says that Jesus has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
That's what I mean here by a new society. This one new man, this, this new organism, this new body. There's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. But now in Christ, there is only one man. It's the church. The body of Christ made up of men from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. This new society, as Paul says, is a creation of Christ. And it is a creation that is the centerpiece of Christ's work of uniting all things in Himself. That's really how we ought to view the church. This is this creation that He's made. This new society. It's it's not simply a a gathering of people who share a a common belief. You know, like like any other club that that may be out there. You know, it's... it's, uh, it's not the NRA, right, where everybody, you know, pays their dues and they have the, you know, a shared belief in the, the Second Amendment, right? It, it's, it's not just a club of, of sorts. It's not a place where we, we just have to go on Sunday. It's the place where the new creation is already beginning. Again, it's the place where, where, where heaven is breaking into the world even now. And in the church, there is no room for divisions, whether they be racial or any other kind of division. Generational, class-based. There's only room for reconciliation because Christ is about the work of uniting all things and all people in Himself. Which leads us our last observation that I want to make. Jesus is our peace and that He destroys divisions. And he's, he's abolished the law so that He might create one new man, this one new society in the church. There's also another reason why Jesus abolished the law. Look again at verse 16. And He might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus reconciles us to God. Notice what Paul says, that this kills the hostility. How do you deal with racial division? How do you kill that hatred? This is easy. The only way to create peace between Jews and Gentiles and between any sinful divisions, between blacks and whites, between blacks and Asians, between one tribe or another tribe, the only way to create lasting, real, unified peace is to reconcile them both, all, to God. And this is a reconciliation which specifically comes through the cross of Christ. Peace is not something that is man-made. Hostility is something that is man-made. 
And how is the hostility of men destroyed? And how are the divisions between brothers and sisters reconciled? It is only by the work of God through the cross. Apart from the cross, apart from the work of Jesus on the cross, the only thing that men know how to do when they have been sinned against is to sin again in retaliation. You've harmed me, so I'm going to harm you. You've oppressed me, I'm going to seek to oppress you. You've struck my cheek, I'm going to strike yours. You've lashed out at me or spoken unkindly to me, I'm going to lash out at you. Sin goes in a vicious cycle. Round and round and round and round. That's why it's not surprising to, to find critical theorists like, like Ibram X. Kendi that, that we saw who, who specifically says that the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. If you discriminate against me, it, it, it's now my turn to discriminate against you. It's a vicious cycle that has never had an end. But what happens at the cross, what happens at the cross is that sin is no longer going in a circle. This vicious cycle of sin, retaliation, vengeance, and bloodshed, and more sin compounded upon more and more sin. What happened at the cross was that sin is no longer going in a vicious circle because at the cross, sin stopped. It's spiraling out of control in the world and then lands on Christ. And when it lands on Christ, it comes to a dead end in his death. And then when he's raised, when he's raised, sin's power loses forever. Now, because of that one man, Jesus, we have received all of the blessings of God. We've been set free so that we might live like Him. And when we are sinned against, we can bear our own cross. The work of the gospel has, of course, ethical implications. And one of the most profound ones, perhaps one of the most radical ones, is that because of the gospel and how it shapes how we respond to sin, you know what happens when you're sinned against? You're told to be the one who pursues reconciliation. You know, like naturally, you would think the emphasis is you've sinned against someone, you know, you, you need to go, you need to go make that right. And certainly that's there. I don't want to say that's that's not there at all. But that, that is certainly there. But there's also a this new emphasis on the person who has been sinned against working for reconciliation. You think about the Matthew 18, 
passage dealing with the pro- <laughs> got a fly in my face. <laughs> um, the process of <laughs> that was going to be in there forever. <laughs> The, the process of dealing with sin in the church, right? Sin amongst brothers, right? If, if someone has sinned against you, you go to your brother. You show, you show him his fault and you try and work for reconciliation, right? That, that new dynamic is a new dynamic that is the result of the gospel. And so when it comes to racial division, right, the... the the gospel imperative is, is not a matter of if, if you are among a, a group of people who have historically been wronged, you hold it over your, your brother or sister until they deal with it. There's, there's, a, there's sort of a new dynamic. You go reconcile with your brothers and sisters. But things have changed. And they've changed because of the gospel. Christ is uniting all things and all people to himself. And this is a supernatural work. This is a work that can only happen by the power of the Spirit through the gospel of Christ. Apart from that, there, there is no peace. But with Christ, there's peace. There's a grander, better, truer story about how People who are divided can be brought together. And it's only, it's only through the work of, of Christ. And so that, that friends, that's our counter-narrative. That's our, our counter-story. As the world is constantly placing these, these new sort of ethics and stories upon us. This, this is what you have to do in, in order to deal with the, the problems of racism as, as we perceive it. Our answer to the world has to be, no, you've gotten it all wrong. The answer is Christ. Not diversity training. It's Christ. Gospel training. So that's what we have to give to the world. Amen. Well, let me, uh, let me close in prayer before I get attacked by any more uh, flies again. So. <laughs> well, Father, again, we recognize that we live in uh, a day and age where there is uh, much division um, over particularly issues of, of, of race and, and racial conflict. And, and Lord, I just pray for the church. I pray for us in particular that as we have to uh, deal with these various issues, whether it be at work, whether it be in schools, Lord, that we would be bold to proclaim the only true message that can bring about true reconciliation among people who are, for all intents and purposes, historically and culturally supposed to be enemies. Because of the work of Christ, enemies, having been reconciled to God, are now reconciled to one another. May we preach this and may you Bless it and strengthen your church in it, we pray in Jesus' name.